Well, it's Easter today, and uh, so I'm going to talk about um, dying. I think death is a really good subject for Easter. And it's different for Christians because uh, Christ died and then he was resurrected. And the Buddha died and then he disappeared. And it's like, we sort of all want to do that. Because even if we're born in heaven or reborn in heaven, if you're a religious Buddhist, uh, eventually you have to leave and it's not as good as you thought it was going to be because of the impermanence factor. And then Earth is okay some of the time, but most of the time there are a lot of people being killed and hungry and cats not being taken care of. And uh, so it could be better. And, And the hell realm, of course, is not good at all. But it does lead to a sense of humility, I suppose. And we want nirvana, because nirvana is what will allow us to exist and not suffer. So if you've come to Buddhism and wonder what the heck it's all about, it's really only about two things. And the first thing is, it's why we suffer as human beings, and then how to end that suffering. And... And suffering is really interesting because it's, it's sort of this uncomfortable feeling that it could be better all the time. Even when it's good, it still could be a little better. And, and that's the thing we sort of want to get rid of, that it could be better thing. And just come to this place of the present moment experience of the perfection of our life and how that would feel. So um, next week I, I have a birthday, and uh, I'm encouraging people to not, not use the word happy in front of it, <laughs> because after a certain age, people just go, oh, birthday? <laughs> you know, you're one year further away from birth, and one year closer to death. And when you're 20, it seems like death is really far away. You know, but like I'm going to be 67, and Gary Shandling died this week, and he was like 66. And people said they they just saw him a couple days before he died. And he said they looked fine. He was telling jokes. He, he was the life of the party. And I'm thinking you don't even have to look sick to die. You can just die. <laughs> you know, and so that got me to thinking about my own demise, which is always good to think about if you're a Buddhist. Because we don't know when it's going to happen. It's the co-pilot. That little death guy is right on our shoulder all the time saying, you're next, you're next. (laughs) And, and, And yet we take our vitamins, we do our exercises, probiotics, we do all the things we're supposed to do to make our life just a little longer. But then you see somebody who's 100, you may not want to go that long. <laughs> there, there could be like a happy place where you die. And, and so the big question came to me, who dies? Who dies? You know, in Buddhism, you know, who am I? What am I supposed to be? And then you say, well, what part of me dies? And then... So I thought I'd test it out, and I talked to my hand. And I said, hand, are you afraid to die? And nothing. And then I talked to my right foot. Are you afraid to die? Nothing. 
And, and then I thought, well, you know, my body doesn't even know it's alive. It doesn't know the difference between life and death. And probably if it did, it would like death because it didn't have to do anything. It's been working its whole life, this body of mine. You know, finding food, finding shelter, finding pleasure, finding happiness. And it still goes, though slower and slower, it still goes. So then I thought to myself, well, it must be the mind. It must be some part of my consciousness that's like really afraid to die. And, and it seems to me that it is our ego, my sense of self. And its whole job, it has one job, only one job, and it's to keep me alive. Its job is to keep me alive. Anything that makes me uncomfortable, the ego says to me, you'll be dead soon, you have to do something about this which you all know when you meditate. Because then the one leg goes numb and then the other leg goes numb and you imagine a wheelchair and they take you out and everybody's really sad that you meditated with them that day and we hope you get better. <laughs> you know? That kind of thing. So the ego it just goes like over the top all the time. You know? And fear and dread of something that might happen or something that is happening and could go south at any moment. And it's just there watching. And we have this whole bag of tricks. We have this bag of tricks of uh, education, of practical experience, of peer groups sharing with us what we're supposed to do. Everybody's willing to tell us what to do. And in some cases, that's really nice of them. And then I thought to myself, well, what can I do for them? They're all telling me what to do. What can I do for them? What would be the greatest gift to them, everybody? And it came to me through a Facebook post. It happens sometimes. The best thing you can do for anybody is to work on yourself. And I go, yeah, that, of course, that's it. So if I'm going to have to die, and now I've figured out who's going to die, it's going to be my ego, and I realize that's the last thing I wants to do, and it will fight all the way. I need to figure out what would make it feel more comfortable in the death process. So, I started with, okay, you know, when you die, you have to give up everything forever. But when you meditate, you give up everything for 20 minutes. So it seems to me a logical deduction that to practice dying, we meditate. We sit here and we let go of all the things we're supposed to do, all the things we have, all the things we want for 20 minutes. And in that 20 minutes, there's a certain sense of peace and joy and bliss and happiness not having anything. Exactly the opposite of what they told us would be true. The more stuff you have, the happier you'll be. So I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to let go of everything for 20 minutes and, and see what happens. And yeah, yeah, okay, cool. So now I'm thinking to myself, well, I have all these things, and I just live in a room. I don't have a, I live in a room with a bed and a desk. And I have stuff everywhere, stacked to the ceiling. People just are so kind to me. They give me things. I find things on Amazon, free shipping that I want. And, you know, and... And it's just like, there the stuff is. So I said, well, if I'm going to die, I should give it away. And, and what's the most logical way to give your stuff away? It's to have a will. 
You create a will. And you name people. And you say, I know you'll love this stuff. This will be yours when I'm dead. <laughs> so I bought this book, and it was like 300 pages with a CD. And I'm thinking, will I live long enough to read this book? <laughs> 300 pages to give my stuff away? <laughs> so I'm going to do that next week. <laughs> <laughs> And this week, I'm just going to... So yesterday, I figured something. I have, a, like, a lot of books. And, you know, and books are really nice, but they take up a lot of space, and they're really heavy. The two heaviest things in the world are water and books. And they gather dust. And you read them once, and there they sit. Sometimes twice, but generally once. So I said, I want to give away my books. Who would like my books? I figured it out. It's where I was yesterday. Leisure World. Seal Beach, 7,500 retired people. They have a library, and they have no Buddhist section in the library. I'm going to change that. They're going to have a remarkable Buddhist section. (laughs) And, you know, all the people that pass through Leisure World, you know, they'll be able to find out about Buddhism. I'm thinking, this is so cool. So every time I go, it's me and a couple boxes of books. And we're going to just put them on the shelf. And there they be. So one problem solved. But I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's really hard to die. Because there's going to be all sorts of stuff happening. So maybe it's good to practice. Practice death. So you practice letting go of all your stuff for 20 minutes. And then you sort of practice letting go of yourself capital S. And how do you let go of yourself? A couple different ways. So the first way is is the way I started in my meditation practice, and it was samatha, it was concentration. And I wanted to concentrate so hard on one thing that nothing else existed. And that's the deal in samatha meditation. You concentrate that hard on one thing. So I picked my breath. Breath was recommended to me by a variety of people. It's something you always have. You don't need to worry about wearing your beads, you know, the candle won't light. I can't meditate now. You got your breath all the time. And it's always changing. It's never the same twice, which is just like life and us. We have deep breaths, we have shallow breaths, we have hard, we have soft. Sometimes it seems like we're not breathing at all. It's always changing, and it's really difficult to keep track of sometimes. So in mindfulness meditation, you would literally keep track of what kind of breath you're breathing. Is it a long one or a short one? And you go, oh yeah, this is a long one. But, but that's mindfulness. And I didn't want mindfulness. I wanted samatha. I wanted bliss and joy and happiness. And that's when you don't pay attention to how big or how short. You just focus on the sensation at the tip of your nose. It goes out and comes in. So you feel a sensation there. And that sensation allows you to start to let go of concepts that you are holding on to. Okay, because in the mindfulness thing, it'd be long or short, but long and short is just a concept for a duration of time, which doesn't really exist anyway. And it's what we do all the time in our head. It's the story that we live with. It's who we are. But you come to a sensation... It's rooted in the present moment experience of your life. 
It's not happening tomorrow. It's not happening yesterday. Any sensation we have right now is happening right now. And so it's like this anchor in the present moment. If you're, if you're getting a little spacey and feel a little uncomfortable about stuff, just pinch yourself, you know? And that sensation brings you back. You go, okay, yeah, everything's still okay, you know? And it's like, um, it's like we need to remind ourselves we're here. Because I get lost. I have a lot of stories and narratives that go on all the time. And especially when I drive. And I, I, I ask myself, well, can I go from point A to point B without hating people? Sometimes I can. Can I go from point A to point B without being hated myself? Without being the jerk that I don't want them to be? And sometimes I can. So even in the simple, complicated act of driving, we are faced with the situation of being here now. You know, and you go, wow, okay. So I'm meditating, I'm meditating, I'm going deeper and deeper, and I go into this jhana thing. See, now, they have this in early Buddhism, they also have this in, in Hinduism, it's called jhana. You go really, like, deep, and you start letting stuff go, just like dying. So there are five characteristics in the first jhana, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. That's the full five in the first jhana. And then when you get to the second jhana, you only have three characteristics. You have let go of applied thought and sustained thought. And now you have a greater sense of happiness and bliss and equanimity. So it's like a path of renunciation, which is like what death is. Death is like this path of renunciation. <laughs> You're just going to be giving stuff up all along the way until the last thing you give up is you. you go, oh, okay. So now I've got this like really pleasant physical sensation of bliss. And you know what? It's a perfect reward for all the sitting and pain I went through. And I don't want to give that up. And, and so I hang in there for a couple of years with my bliss. You know, and it was good for a couple of years. But then it takes a lot of energy to be blissful. You know, and you're exhausted. Wow, that was a good bliss. And you just want to, <laughs> you know, lay down and sleep for a little while, you know. So, so you say, well, there's probably something beyond this bliss, and there is, there's happiness. So you work really hard on letting go of your attachment to the bliss that you've had for two years, and you go into happiness. And now you're in the third jhana. You have happiness and you have equanimity. And happiness is more subtle. It's not like, it's not like really powerful, like bliss and pleasure. It's really subtle, and it's a nice place to be. And the Buddha said that, you know, nirvana and happiness have a lot in common. And you go, wow, okay, so maybe the end of the Buddhist path is happiness. Yes, if you look at it that way. It's a, it's a good sell. It's a hard sell to say nirvana is the end. But it's a good sell to say, yeah, you can be happy forever once you achieve nirvana. You know, and we're so tired of being happy for just a short time. You know, you go see the Rolling Stones and it's, you're happy for a few hours, you know. And then you go, wow, how can I be happy next? And it's just continual being happy and spending money and time, and it's never ultimately satisfying. So Buddhism really paints a bleak picture of that kind of happiness. It's sense-door happiness. It's eye happiness and ear happiness and nose happiness and tongue happiness and touch happiness and thinking happiness. And so that's our lowest form of happiness, and that's where we're stuck most of the time, running after that and running away from aversion or pain or unsatisfactoriness. 
So now I'm in happiness land. I'm in the third jhana, and I'm just happy. I'm just sitting there. I'm happy. And, you know, and then I walk out in the street, and I got this little half smile, and I'm just, like, really happy. And people are just looking at me like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Why is he happy and I'm not, you know? What does he know that I don't know? And it's nothing. I know nothing. That's why I'm happy. As soon as I start to know anything, I become unhappy. But there's one place to go still, and that's equanimity. That's balance. Not indifference. It's balance. It's where everything is just sort of happening, and you don't attach, and you have no aversion, and you are in the experience without any kind of critique of the experience. you just sort of like there. And it's nice. It's nice not to have to pick sides. And in this presidential year we find ourselves in, everybody is picking sides. It's it's amazing how many sides they can pick. I am blown away. And everybody knows their side is the right side. But to be in the middle, there's no right side or wrong side. It's a cool place. So there you are, and you're just sort of hanging out there for a long time, fourth jhana. And you want, to, you want to ultimately one day maybe transfer that kind of mind state to your everyday walking mind state. That's sort of what you hope to do, but you keep having opinions and preferences that get in the way of that nice balance. But can you imagine now you're dying, okay? And don't imagine it too well. And, and, you're, and you're lying there, and, you know, and the nurse comes in and turns off the TV, you know, and under your breath you say thank you. And then you start doing your jhanic meditation. You know, you start going into, okay, uh, applied thought, sustained thought, let that go. Bliss, yeah, still bliss. It's still there. Why is bliss still there? Because it's an inside job. It's not, you can find this inside, not outside. Buddhism is teaching us to always look inside for the truth, because that's the only place truth resides. Then you go into this happiness place, okay, and you're dying and getting closer, and now the priest is in there giving you last rites, and you go, no, I'm a Buddhist, thank you. And, you know, and, and then it's equanimity time. It's perfect balance time. It's no preference time, no opinions time. It's just you're there, and then you're not. Okay, so we can practice this while we're alive. We don't need that hospital bed. We can do it while we're alive. Every day, 20 minutes a day, 40 minutes a day, whatever you have time for, you know? And people say, what are you doing? You say, I'm practicing to die. And then they think you're morbid and unrealistic, and you know you're totally realistic and have positive mind states about death. Because what is death to a Buddhist? It's the doorway to our next birth. We got to die to be born again. That's it. That's the deal. You can't just keep living one life. You got many ahead of you and many behind you. And I know most of you are not into that yet. But there may be a time in your life when your hair is gray and your teeth aren't there any longer and you're going to say, yeah, maybe I've used up this life. All the good stuff is sort of gone now. And even the maintaining is difficult. It's all downhill. Maybe I should get that next life ready. Make it just accessible. And i got to do my work. 
But there's another way to go, and this is sort of the mindfulness way. And this is a different kind of meditation, and this is the kind of meditation that I have grown into. You know, because when I started to meditate, I wanted to really push it, and I wanted to really feel all the stuff I had read. Because when you read all these books of meditation, it makes it sound so good. You can hardly wait. And I suffered painfully for two years. The first two years were just terrible. My legs would not hit the ground. I would sit like this because my thigh muscles were too tight. And somebody said, well, why don't you put your hands on your knees and that extra weight after a couple years, you'll actually touch the ground. You know, and it's so much more comfortable when your knees are on the ground. So I struggled, and I didn't want to suffer. I wanted to feel the most intense bliss and pleasure and happiness I could. And I was lucky enough to experience some of that some of the time. But it didn't lead anyplace. It was great while it was going on, don't get me wrong. And it didn't cost a penny, and you can't get busted. But... <laughs> It's like, where does it go from there? Where does it go from there? When you've had you know, the best bliss, the blessed, best happiness, what happens next? So I'm reading this Zen book. And, and I never liked Zen. It was too poetic and abstract for me. Um, and, you know, but then I started to hear it. I started to actually hear Zen and what they were saying, which is remarkable because they don't say anything. <laughs> you know? They don't even give you a hint, you know. But I'm starting to understand this. So I said to myself, I'm just going to sit. I'm just going to sit. I'm going to do the simplest form of meditation that I can think of, and it's just sitting, which is called shikantaza in Japanese Zen. And it is a difficult form of meditation because the whole idea in shikantaza is to simply sit and not be flypaper to have nothing attached to you, and to have no aversion, to be like a transparent pane of glass. And every sense door stimulus just moves through you without getting caught in narrative or storyline or identification or importance. So, for instance, I'm just down the street, Olympic in Vermont. We are in a helicopter route they're over our place all the time. Sometimes they even like to circle, just to see how we're doing. <laughs> you know? And they are like 100 feet in the air, and those helicopter engines are loud. They're, you can't do anything. you, you got to just turn off everything you're listening to until they're gone. So I'm sitting in meditation, and here comes the helicopter. And I, I know it. It's happened 10,000 times before. I know what it's going to do. I even know what color it is, how high it is, and how many lights are on. You know, and, and so what happened to me was I would get this ear door stimulus, and it would create a picture and story in my head. So it wasn't at all about my eardrum vibrating. It was about the story that came out of that, wishing it was a different story that I could be someplace else, not have helicopters, wanting it to be better than it is. And of course, that's when you start to suffer. So if you're just sitting, it's just your eardrum vibrating. 
you see? You, you, you don't let it turn into the giant story of the helicopter police chasing someone. It's just your eardrum vibrating. It's a sensation, like the pinch. Okay. The smell of incense burning. Sometimes people get carried away with incense. 10, 20, 50, 100 sticks at one time. Just like forest fire in your <laughs> zendo, you know? You feel like asthma's going to set in, emphysema, you just, there you are, hoping somebody opens a window and they don't. And, and that, so you got this, you know, this smell, and it stimulates all those thoughts and pictures and ideas and wishing that it was different than it is. And every sense story, you got the sensation of touch, and there you are sitting, and your knee falls asleep, and your ankle falls asleep, and your back hurts, and you go, wow. I wish they would design some way to sit where you wouldn't have to have pain, you know? And you see people with like three or four cushions and they're stacking them all over the place, you know? And they have the, 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 the colored yoga suit on that matches and, and that's going to help sit better as well. And you just... <laughs> and, and nothing works. Nothing works. There's no comfortable way to sit. Sooner or later, the the suffering, the pain that's always in your body manifests. See, we keep running away from it. We we have aversion to our physical pain, so we keep distracting ourselves with 10,000 things. And when you're just sitting there with few or no distractions at all, the pain comes to the surface, and you go, wow. But is it really pain? You know, I learned that word. I read the definition I know what pain is supposed to be, and, but could it simply be another sensation? A really strong sensation, mind you, but just another sensation. And would the advantage of having a sensation over pain allow you to come to a faster place of acceptance with it? Because pain is, you know, we have so many concepts about pain and how to get rid of pain. And advertisements every day on TVs, these perfectly healthy people talking about the new prescription they just got. You know, and all the side effects, death, <laughs> mental illness, emphysema, never to walk again, and they're smiling, you know. So we get at all out of the way, and now we're here, and we're just sort of sitting with it. We're going, ooh, I got a lot of sensation. I got my ears of sensation, da-da-da-da-da, and we just sort of like, bang, okay. There you are, the transparent pane of glass, and you had this sort of like look on your face. And I had that look on my face the other day when I was driving, which is not a good look to have. <laughs> because there's this guy, and he's walking across the crosswalk, and he looks at me to see if I'm going to run him over, and he sees my acceptance face. <laughs> and I just had this no look, no emotion, no stare, just sitting there, like I'm sort of dead, you know. <laughs> and he takes two steps and turns around and looks again. And I knew at that point I should have waved. Just to let him know I was aware he was there, you know. I just sat there in that total acceptance place, and he made it across. So sometimes you can't tell people you have total acceptance because they don't know what to do. They expect you to have opinions and, and make choices. Okay, so now we're dying, okay? We're back in that bed again. The TV's turned off. And, and now we come to this place of just lying things we can't sit, but maybe we can sit. 
I've had this fantasy of dying in a hospital bed in full lotus. And I thought it would be so cool for the nurse to come in. And just go, whoa, that guy meditates. Then they'd have to rigor mortis, they have to sort of stretch me out, you know. So they could get me away. But, but here we are, this place of total acceptance. And, and, and now we're just sitting and lying through the whole process. And just watching it. And what is it? It's the sensations of dying. But you have been meditating for 10 or 20 years. You know those sensations. They are familiar to you. They have become your friends. There is no fear. You understand you're just in another form of transition. And every time we sit, we're in transition. Whoa. Okay, so now we've got these two ways to do it. We have the the way of just sort of like sitting through it. And we have the way of hiding from it, going so deep, so deep in our jhanic meditation that we come to that place of equanimity, we come to that place of peace, which is always there inside of us. And if you find yourself in a situation where you need a refuge, it's always with you. It's always with you. It's right in there. So you can go there and die. Or you can sit there and die. And these are two avenues to our demise that we can practice on a daily basis. Now, ironically, after all of this dying, it allows us to live more fully and engage more skillfully in the world around us while we are alive. We have a great sense of courage now. We have faced death morning after morning, evening after evening. And it didn't kill us. (laughs) There we are. We're just sort of sitting there, either deep in that place of peace or simply a transparent pane of glass. There we are. There's a wonderful Zen story that comes to mind of of this really bad outlaw back in the old days in Japan. And he would go into villages and his men would take the women and burn the house. And then one day he's in a village and there's a little Zen hut there, a little Zen zendo, and the master's in there. And he's just sitting there. And the outlaw comes in and he's sort of scarred and dirty and smelly and he looks at the Zen master and says, Don't you know who I am? I can kill you without blinking an eye. And the Zen master said, I can be killed without blinking an eye. And the outlaw bowed and left because he knew who the master was. Love that story. And it paints such a great picture about the courage necessary to die and live well. To die and live well. And every time we go into the world, it is a challenge. I find it more and more challenging because there seems to be more and more people out there. Nevertheless, always more. And so can I routinely go through the tasks of my day without being distracted by some great fear or disappointment or confusion? And and when it's complete, is there a sense of I've done it or is there a sense of what's next? You know, is it an event or is it simply the process that continues? So this practice, I've tried to integrate into my everyday life. I've tried to use it to be 
a more skillful person. And I fail often. And I say things I wish I hadn't have said and done things I wish I hadn't have done. And I just have to look at myself at that moment and say, with all sincerity, not a Buddha yet. That's it. You know, if I have to forgive everybody else, I need to forgive myself too for not being who I think I should be, for them not being who I think they should be, and coming to a place of just accepting who I am, which is always changing and hard to pin down. But that's the game. That's what we're in this for. Who am I? Who dies? And, more importantly, who lives? Ah, okay. I would love to get some questions or comments on what I've just said. Yes, sir. Um, do you think that the jhana states, is that some, uh, something to worthwhile to pursue in the uh, practice? Or do you think that, it's, that that's something that, uh, that it's better to just sort of stick with the mindfulness type approach with the meditation? Okay. You need both. Even if you're doing mostly mindfulness, you still need both. Uh, because you need to be able to concentrate. And, and the difference between jhanic meditation and vipassana meditation, or mindfulness, is this. In jhana, you have sustained, focused, laser-like concentration. In mindfulness, you have a momentary concentration. You, you zap in and then zap out. And what you're zapping in on is the truth of your existence, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the not-self. Yesterday, at Leisure World, a fellow came up, and, and he'd been there a few times before, and he's an older guy, and he used to be a writer, and now he's retired. And, 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 he, and he was almost tearful in, in asking me, you know, I, I, w- I can't think of the words anymore. I, I start talking, and I want to ask a question, and I can't think of the next word I'm going to say. And, you know, and I used to write, and it's just driving me crazy. Is there anything I can do? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I said, well, have you talked to your doctor? I thought that would be a good place to start. And then I said, and have you tried vitamins? And then I said, have you tried probiotics? And, and it, now that's the funniest part of the whole thing. But you know what? That worked the best for me. I had no idea. When I was in the hospital, I had like three days of antibiotics. A friend of mine bought me some probiotics. He said, you probably have no biotics left, so let's get probiotics. And I started taking them, and I found there was a, a, a subtle but real change in the way I was able to grab words. That before there was a pause, and I, I hesitated, and it was difficult to get the... And now they just sort of jump up and say, I'm the one. Because of the probiotics. And in doing reading about probiotics, I also find that our gut is the second brain. I had no idea. So when, you know... So I, and then, to top it all off, to keep my memory sharp, I have a tenor guitar, I have a plectrum banjo, and I have a ukulele. And all of them have four strings. But they all require different chord shapes for the same chord. 
And so I will play one one day and play one another day and play one another day and I'll do the same chords but having to remember the chord shapes or to hear the chord shapes. To... So there, there are a lot of ways to keep it going. Now, could I have just sat down and said to this guy, you know, try this, try that. It might work. I could have said that, but you know what? It, it wouldn't have registered. I, uh, the problem with that is it's aging. And sometimes there's a, uh, a way to fix it, and sometimes there isn't. And as we age, we find we have more boundaries or limitations. That all the things we used to do, sometimes we can't or do them as well now because we're aging. And as we continue age, we'll be doing less and less things, and maybe even thinking less and less thoughts. Though some people are very sharp right to the end. So, I think in our meditation practice, in, in samatha and vipassana, we, we have the opportunity to really self-evaluate on a daily basis. How am I doing today? You know, how do I feel today? How am I walking today? How am I talking today? And some days are good, and some days aren't so good, and it's not linear. The thing that comes out of my practice is it's not linear. It never goes one, two, three, four, which is so frustrating. If I want to build a muscle, I know that if I do it long enough, it'll get bigger. But life, it just happens, and not necessarily in order. And I'm going, whoa. So this level of acceptance that comes through mindfulness and jhana uh, allows us a, a bit more comfort and peace in this very uncomfortable world that we live in. So I would say the Buddha did jhana meditation and then did mindfulness meditation. And if you go on a Goenka retreat, I understand the first day or so is concentration and then it's mindfulness. So they, so they work together. They benefit each other. And, and when you're mindful, it allows you to take it right out into the world. Jhana, you have to stay on the cushion because you're at that place where you can't do anything except be inside. Is that helpful? Yeah, it is helpful. Um, I'm wondering, too, that, you know, in my you know, uh, encounters with Buddhism, um, the, the, most of the groups that I uh, are a part of are all about the, the pasana and mindfulness. Are there uh, like groups or, or places where they learn about jhana as well? Or? They're just all sitting quietly someplace. It's hard to find them. <laughs> you know, now that's the deal. That's the deal. Because when I learned first of jhana, I found it in the Vasudhimaga, Path to Purification, Buddha Gosha, 5th century. So I said to myself, I'm going to go find some of the teachers because that's what I want to learn. I couldn't find one. You know, it's rare. It's a rare individual who teaches jhana or samatha meditation. But if you go online, sometimes you're able to find video and audio of retreats, jhana retreats. And sometimes they have books or outlines also that you can download in PDF, which will get you started. It's, you know, it's because it's an internal reality it's there's a lot of things that can go wrong and so you know if you're prone to be psychotic or schizophrenic man you you go right there you know so it it isn't encouraged with everybody and in fact some of the requirements for jhana we get to find a, a very peaceful place 
you know, that doesn't have, you know, in, uh, interruptions, and you have to have uh, uh, access to food and water, so you don't have to worry about that. And then, and it is literally like going on a retreat alone, and and there, and then you start working on the outside to the inside, and then you get there. So I would say the there's more and more stuff now on the internet. When I first started, there was very little, but it's there is more stuff, and that might lead you then to someone locally who's teaching it, and they can and and of course, again, this is the deal. You know, I have found with teachers, is the best teachers tell you what they do, they don't tell you what you should do. So it's hard to find those teachers because a lot of people want to tell you what to do, you know, and it just drives me nuts. So I listen respectfully, and then I leave. It's like, okay, because nobody can do it for you. Nobody can tell you who you are when you don't even know yourself who you are. Nobody knows your karma from all the past lives you've lived. Nobody knows all the challenges you faced simply in this lifetime. So when we listen to teachers, the best ones say, this is what I have come to understand. This is what worked for me. And there's a disclaimer in there, which it may not work for you, but give it a try. That kind of thing. So that would be my telling you what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hi. uh, I don't know if this is too off topic, but um, you're talking about death. And my mother recently committed suicide last year. And I ironically stayed in the room where she did it three days ago. So it's uh, interesting that the topic was death. I'm just wondering, Buddhism and suicide, if you could say a few words on that. Yeah, okay. Buddhism and suicide. It's always wrong to kill. It's always wrong to kill yourself. But sometimes it's necessary. There was nothing wrong with her. No, 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 no. There's always, some, there's always something wrong with it. Right. But sometimes it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's Buddhism and abortion. Okay. Sometimes it's appropriate to abort, but it's not right. Okay. It's wrong. And why is it wrong? It's wrong from a karmic standpoint, that the consequences of that action will, have, um, will lead you to have more suffering rather than less. More what? More suffering. Oh. Karma, the consequences of abortion would lead the person to have more suffering rather than less. Right. Okay. Uh, meaning in this life. And now, so, so does that mean you're stuck with that extra suffering? No, it doesn't. No. You, you can be proactive, do good, skillful things for other people, and balance that negative karma. You see, it's sort of like you know, going into business for yourself. You have this karma. You have the good karma and you have the bad karma. Okay, you can generate good karma by doing generosity, compassion, and acquiring wisdom. You can have bad karma by greed, hatred, and delusion. So you sort of see what you say, do, and think, and you start to change that, and the karma that you're producing today can negate the karma that happened last week, last month, last year, the consequences of that karma, which is called vipaka. So you have bad vipaka, you have good karma, they neutralize each other. Okay, but it's still always wrong. Now, I asked a monk, is it wrong for a monk to kill himself? And this monk said, well, it's more in the way on how they do it. 
which I thought was an interesting idea. So it may not be, you know, you may have less unskillful vipaka or less suffering if you kill yourself in an appropriate way. I go, hmm, that's what I said, hmm. So, so I said to him, well, what's the appropriate way to kill yourself? He said, you stop drinking water and you stop eating food. And nature kills you. Isn't that interesting? But it's still always wrong to kill yourself, and there's still going to be a little bit of negative vipaka consequence to deal with, but not as much. Next life, is that not an option if you kill yourself? Are you, like, done? <laughs> You're not done, and that's the irony of the whole thing. You, sometimes people kill themselves because there's no other thing, there's nothing else to do, they can't figure it out, and they just want to end their suffering. But in the act of killing themselves, they're creating more suffering for the next lifetime. They don't, they don't stop being reborn if they're a Buddhist or a Hindu. They just reborn, and now they have a little more to deal with, you know. But maybe in that lifetime they'll figure it out. It's a second chance, or a thousandth chance, or a millionth chance to check, you know. And, and so you go into it, and you go, okay, yeah. So it, it's not a good solution to a problem to kill yourself because it doesn't end the problem. And also, it creates a whole lot of suffering for the people left behind. You know, sometimes they say, why, you know, you know Robin Williams comes to mind. That freaked so many people out when he committed suicide, you know. And you go, wow, he had everything, and he still committed suicide. So maybe having everything isn't the answer, you know. Um, so it's always wrong to kill, but sometimes it's necessary. So if it's a result of mental illness, do you get like a pass? <laughs> well, you know, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. So what, what you're dealing with now is, is the intention behind the action. And, and it sort of goes like this in an overly, oversimplified way. That I'm going to kill an ant because it's just driving me crazy. So I plan on how I'm going to kill the ant. I execute my plan, and the ant dies. I take great joy in the fact that I killed the ant, and I get the most bad karma for that. If I'm walking down the street and step on an ant and not even know the ant was there, no karmic consequence to that. Intention has a whole lot to do with Buddhist karma. So if a person is mentally ill, and I have to say... When you study, you know, Buddhist psychology, we're all a little mentally ill because we have greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, it's, it, it may lessen the consequences. I'm not sure it's a pass, though. It's hard to say. I don't know. I don't have the ability to weigh that. Mm-hmm. looking for a place to start. Yeah, and every time you use Buddhism as a place to start, it's going to be great. There's no black and white answers, which is the most frustrating part of all. Because a lot of traditions will tell you exactly what you want to hear and why. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hey. A question on renunciation. I think you talked about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in the context, I've got a, like a corporate job. I, I can't ever see myself being a, like taking the path that you've taken. Yeah. Um, so in that... In that um, in that world, I do uh, earn more and have more really than I need to survive, a lot more. You're very lucky. Lucky. I am very lucky. Um, 
So when you talked about giving things up and giving things up, giving away the books, giving away ah. everything, how does how do you do that skillfully? When you like, you do, I will have, I have way more than I need. Yeah. Okay. Um, you have to be really careful uh, in giving your stuff up because it'll come back. And it's, it's, it's the most amazing thing. When I moved into the center, I gave up like all my musical instruments. And now I have more musical instruments than I had before. How did that happen? Well, I didn't give up the desire for them. I didn't give up the attachment for them. I just gave them up, you see. So I would say it's okay to have more than we need, but realize we're just using the stuff and not owning the stuff. So can you use all the stuff that you have? Then you'd say, well, you know, not really. I have too much stuff to use. So maybe I can give that to other people so they can use it. You know, not own it. And, and, and it's not your ownership that's in question now. It's just, it's the usability. See how that sort of works? I do. Question. Yes. Can you, how do you, how, then how do you give that skillfully? Do I choose who, who I think is best? Who should I give that to? You know, who do you give that to in a skillful way? Yeah, you, you know what? That's the really hard part because a lot of people aren't going to want the stuff you think they want. <laughs> and, and, and they may want better stuff. <laughs> you know... It's, it's America, you know? <laughs> and so here you are, you've had it for 20 years, there's so much emotion attached to it. And I don't want that old thing. So it's like, I don't know, you know, sometimes if we listen carefully, we can sense if they may be able to use something we have. Now, you're going to put them in a difficult position because they're going to have to thank you. You know, and you're going to say, no, you don't thank me. I'm just using it. It's okay. And, and so there's this, it's, it's, it's as hard to give as it is to receive. And, and it's really difficult. And so when people give me stuff, and, and I'm lucky that they give me so much stuff, especially for the cats all the time, that, that I realize they're not giving it to me. They're giving it to what I stand for in their mind. They're giving it to the robes, or they're giving it to the cats that can't speak, and I'm the middle guy, you know? And, and so this, the sense of ego can get stimulated so easily, easily when people give you stuff and when you, you know, give stuff away. Look how good I am. Look what I don't need, you know, that kind of thing. So there's an ego thing. So it, you might think of it as a practice, a practice of generosity, which is one of the perfections in Buddhism. And there's a whole series of articles, if you go on the internet, of how to practice generosity and do it in a skillful way. And, and that might be a good starting place, you know. And then, and, but the reason I'm giving the books up is because I don't use them. And, and when you die, you know, the state gets all your stuff. You know, if you don't have it written out, California gets it. And I know California doesn't want my books. So, so I'm working really hard to sort of get that all fixed before I go, not knowing when I'm going to go. I could go at 80. Who knows, you know? But along the way, I'll have fewer and fewer things to worry about, to dust, to care for, you know? And, uh, and yet I'm buying new stuff all the time. <laughs> so, okay. Thank you for the question. 
Hi, yeah. Okay, good. I can answer that. And then I'll get you a question. When we come into meditation, the first thing we do is apply our thought to the object of meditation, sensation of breath. So we take our attention and put it at the tip of our nose and hold it there. The holding it there is the sustained thought. So the first act is to apply it. The second act is to hold it there and not let it be distracted or go someplace else. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, you talked about it being necessary but wrong. Yes. To do certain things, such as commit suicide or whatever. Yeah. And I, I'm getting the impression that you're thinking the reason that is is that it's something to do with karma. But where do you get the experiential knowledge to say something that's necessary but wrong? And what does that mean? Okay. Uh, what comes to mind is the Vietnam War, which is on PBS now, and they're having all sorts of episodes of that. You can go to the news today and look at Syria. So sometimes... What does it need to be wrong? Well, it's always wrong to kill. For a Buddha... What does that mean? Okay. That's a good question, because it's, it's oftentimes not understood. Why is it wrong to kill? Number one, this is the only planet in our solar system and maybe the galaxy that has life. Where were you before you were born? What are the chances of you being born here with all the other planets and the lack of life out there? It is a miracle that you are here. You may not feel that way, but it is a miracle that you are here. So first of all, we honor the fact that we all made it. Now, for a Buddhist, the reason we don't want to kill is because, number one, it's bad karma. Why is it bad karma? Why is it wrong? Because killing, apparently, according to Buddhism, increases our suffering rather than decreases our suffering. We do not have a divine lawgiver like God to decide for us what is right and what is wrong and what is our punishment. Rather, we have the cause and consequence of what we think, say, and do that determines how much we suffer or how little we suffer. So we have a different reference point when it comes to good or bad. How does a Buddhist spell God? G-O-O-D. Okay. So, now, somebody has terminal cancer. The monk has terminal cancer. The monk will be dying. The monk decides to stop eating and drinking, to expedite the process and the rebirth, to be reborn sooner than they would have if they didn't do anything. But they paid the price. There was a ticket to do that. And the ticket was you're going to have a, a little more difficulty being happy in the next lifetime because you took your life in this lifetime. But that can be rectified by doing generosity, compassion, and acquiring wisdom, and that will balance that out. Uh, From a Buddhist point of view, the idea of enlightenment is so important. And it takes a really long time to become enlightened or to achieve nirvana. We could be simply an hour away from our enlightenment and not know it. 
because we have worked many lifetimes before practicing and making it available to us in the next hour. That all the conditions necessary for our enlightenment, our awareness of enlightenment, will be there in one hour. And if we are killed or we kill ourselves, we miss that opportunity. And who knows how many more lifetimes it will take to have all the conditions necessary in one moment to allow us to wake up and end our suffering and be in nirvana. One of the ironies are the euphemisms we use for killing to make it seem just a little better. Last Sunday, he said, he went on the lake and had a wonderful day killing fish. I must have killed 50, he said, and look how big and strong they were. And the Buddhist would just shed a tear, because fishing is killing. You know, now, is it wrong to kill fish? Well, if you're hungry, it's wrong to kill fish, but that food may keep you alive long enough to practice to achieve your nirvana. So we should always honor those creatures that we're eating because they are allowing us to continue our practice. There are many different ways of looking at death. Uh, And then we have social death. We have like the death sentence, the death penalty. Is it right for the state to kill? And some states have said no, and some states have said yes. In our practice, if it matures the way it is most likely to, I don't want to say supposed to, most likely to, the lives of others will become more important than our life. The life of the cockroach will be just as important as yours to the meditator. And rather than kill the cockroach, they will catch the cockroach and put it in an environment that doesn't make humans feel uncomfortable. Because when humans feel uncomfortable, the easiest way to get to that, get rid of that uncomfortable feeling is to kill the problem. We do it all the time and think nothing of it. But as you meditate, as you start to wake up, you become much more sensitive. And you may even cry when you see people holding fish. You may just be so sad because perhaps there was another way to do it. So that's what I would say to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. You know, sometimes I'll have like an itch and focus focusing on it. I was told that, you know, it just if you focus on it with equanimity it just passes. I guess maybe it's tough for me to have equanimity. Do you find it works for you? Have you focused and has it gone away? No, it gets more intense. Yeah. And I feel like I have to scratch it. Yeah. I I would suggest ibuprofen. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have tried to neutralize pain and just failed miserably. When it hurts, it hurts. You know, and, and, and the philosophy behind it's just a sensation, and if you meditate long enough. Now, as you can see today, I've been sitting here cross-legged for a very long time and, and not moved a bit, and I have no pain. But it's taken me years and years of sitting to get to the place where I can sit and have no pain. So maybe with enough practice in the future, we can have a variety of pains and neutralize them with our focus, with our meditation practice, with our wisdom, and maybe not. We don't know. Yeah. 
But I, I, I can say this. I can say as I get older, I'm less sensitive. And it takes more to create pain. That's a good thing. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. What are the benefits uh, when we're meditating to sitting in the lotus position as opposed to just sitting in a chair? Okay. Sitting in a chair is fine. A lot of people, as they get older, really like chairs, and I agree. The whole idea about finding a good posture is to have it stable and allow us to work on our mind. It's not about the body. It's about the mind. And the full lotus position is the most stable position one can have sitting on a floor, according to generations of meditators. Maybe because I didn't have any chair? Well, you know... I'm sure that's part of the case. I, 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 I see, you know, uh, on, on my Facebook page, I have people from Japan and Malaysia and all over the Asian world, and sometimes they post pictures of inside their house, and they got no chairs. They got low tables, and they got carpets to sit on and maybe a cushion or two, but no chairs. Now, I was born in Iowa. We had chairs, and... <laughs> And I realized in going from a chair to the floor, it would take a while because I am not accustomed or was not accustomed to sitting on the floor. And I couldn't find a comfortable way to do it. But given enough time and tenacity, I figured it out. So if you're going to sit on the floor, the full lotus is the best, half lotus is second best, and Burmese style is third best, which is what I do, which is one leg parallel to the other leg with both touching the ground. The worst one is called the Indian position, and, and that's where your ankles are crossed, sitting cross-legged. And, and that causes a lot of pain because the blood stops. And then a chair is good, but not with arms, and you don't want to use the back if you can avoid it. You want to sit on the first, front third of the chair with your legs parallel to the ground. And then you have benches. So there are many different ways to sit and many different benches and cushions and chairs to use. But the whole idea is then, okay, now you put your body in a place that can sit for a long period of time. Now you take your attention to your brain, your mind, your consciousness, and that's the rest of your life. It's much easier to work on the body than it is on the mind. I have found. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Did you say uh, standing, sitting, walking, or lying down? That's mindfulness. That's right. That's being aware of your position. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, I think we've, ooh, I think we've done everything we needed to do today. <laughs> so let's do a quick loving-kindness meditation. And we're set. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.